Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and if you've listened to My Time Capsule before, then you'll know that this is the podcast in which I ask my guests to choose five things from their life to preserve in their very own time capsule. The five things consist of four things that they love, and one thing they would be glad to banish from their life, and never have to think about again. If you haven't listened to my time capsule before, then you'll also now know that. Anyway, my guest in this episode is the actor, comedian and voice artist Alex Lowe, the creator and performer of the brilliant Barry from Watford, as heard on Steve Wright's BBC Radio 2 show and Ian Lee's shows. Barry from Watford also has a weekly podcast performed with Angelos Epithemiou called The Angelos and Barry Show. Alex has appeared in many television programmes, including Three Men in a Boat, The Rise and Fall of Rome, The Fast Show, Fun at the Funeral Parlour and Bremner Bird and Fortune. He appeared in four episodes of Simon Day's comedy series Grass, he played Clinton Baptiste in Peter Kay's Phoenix Nights and Britain's Got the Pop Factor and Sparky in That Peter Kay Thing. He's also been in The 11 O'Clock Show on Channel 4. He wrote and performed for Ronnie Ancona and Co. on BBC One and performed in The Peter Serafinovich Show on BBC Two. In the cinema, Alex played Paul in Peter's Friends, The Messenger in Much Ado About Nothing and Simon Merriel in Haunted. He's regularly heard on radio in such shows as Absolute Power, 15-Minute Musical, Not Today, Thank You, The Laxian Key and The Scarifiers. Most notably, he plays Brian in Claire in the Community with Sally Phillips for BBC Radio 4. In 2020, Alex was all ready to tour the whole country performing his brilliant comedy creation, Clinton Baptiste. 
Instead, he sat at home talking to people on his computer, luckily including me. So here is my chat with the brilliant Alex Lowe. I hope you have fun listening to it. Can I begin with something I would very much like to keep Mm. uh, in my time capsule? And now this sounds kind of horribly sycophantic and a bit sort of actly, but in 1990, I was at Leicester Polytechnic. I graduated from my frankly terrible degree in performing (laughs) arts. Uh, Having said that, there, there are three BAFTA winners uh, in that year from Leicester Polytechnic, would you believe? Justin Chadwick, the uh, Hollywood film director who, who directed The Long Walk to Freedom, the Nelson Mandela thing. Oh, yeah. He directed Bleak House. Uh, a chap called Nick Murphy, who directed um, Occupation with Jimmy Nesbitt and won a, a BAFTA. Yeah. And directed the first one of, what was that? Oh, that Channel f- uh, Sky thing. Oh, well, he's done an awful lot. He's always very busy. And the <laughs> other one was, of course, Joe Scanlon. You know Joe Scanlon, the actress. Yeah. She's in uh, Getting On. Yeah. She's uh, she was our lecturer. Anyway, we found ourselves at the Edinburgh Festival in the days, I suppose, when you could still do this sort of thing at the assembly rooms. We were just students. I think nowadays you'd be outpriced and you wouldn't be able to do it. They don't put shows on there anymore. No. Annoyingly. No, no, well, that's right. Uh, but it was incredibly thrilling for us, you know, to to be there. And we we did a production of uh, the Hypercontract Moliere, and it was, you know, uh, from that time we had so little resources in my degree, it was ludicrous. <laughs> so the whole thing was a minimalist piece, you know, born out of the fact that we had no set, we had no money for props, no lighting, and it was just made with us absolutely dedicated to creating as actors with the absolute bare minimum. Yeah. And we sort of stormed the National Student Drama Festival. We ended up with the National Student Theatre Company at the Edinburgh Festival. And the first thing that I would like to keep was, because I knew that Ken Branner, Kenneth Branner, who I'd been in another country, the play with when I was 14. Really? I knew, yeah, yeah, I was in another country in, in, in 1982 uh, with Rupert Everett and Kenneth Branner. I played Wharton, the dormitory fag in that, play wow what a brilliant thing oh it was a great thing I was of course it was just so extraordinary to be in the west end my parents were my chaperones and that went on for months and months and months on end and so I always thought well, when I graduate I will get in touch with Ken Branner and I'd sort of been in touch with him and he'd been a you know, very very friendly lovely chap and he was there with the Renaissance Theatre Company and I got in touch with him and he said oh yeah I'll be along with Emma Thompson who he was married to at the time. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, it was so huge, this this show we were doing, and it, they queued around the block to get in. And as I stood there at the, on the stage at, at the start, the only two seats that weren't taken were Ken Branagh's <laughs> and Emma's and this searing disappointment. Uh, but then the thing I'd like to keep is when I came off, there was a message from me and a, and a letter from Emma saying, so sorry we couldn't make it. I bought two tickets for tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow. And oh, it was just brilliant. because what happened after that was I went to see Ken at the King's Theatre where he was with Renaissance mm-hmm. in his dressing room. And he said to me, We love the show. What are your plans? And I said, Well, I've got a TIE thing I might do at Birmingham Rep. And uh, I don't really know. And he said, well, well, what about the RSC? What about coming to work with us? And I went, well, yeah, I'd love to do that. Wow. And he literally said, and I, I'll never forget this, you know, from going from nothing and and not having a showcase, it wasn't even a drama school, 
to suddenly, in the space of that evening, Ken had said, come and join us with Renaissance in, in the April. Yeah. Uh, what's your immediate problem? I said, well, I really need an agent. He said, okay, these are the people I recommend. I'm going off to do Dead Again, uh, the film yes. in the States. If you can't get an agent, simply reverse the charges and I'll sort it out for you. My God. It was just like, it was all there on a plate. and So you certainly had this patron. Yeah, and he was and and for many years he really helped me out and I was in uh, Peter's Friends and much about nothing did a short film with him and uh, Sir John Gielgud mm-hmm. did plays you know radio plays play readings wow and he was just the greatest and I, of course I was his stand in as well so exactly the same height as him same sort of colouring and so I'd be there throughout the films as his stand in when he was directing mm. and he'd give me a part in the films you know so I have so much to thank him for really he was a really thoroughly decent guy I've heard other stories from other actors yeah and he really does sound like the most I've only met him once yeah. and somebody said this is Mike and he said hello Ken Branner yeah and I always think that's a sign of somebody being clever Oh God, absolutely. And I and I could never, you know, that that sort of English fashion for knocking people, you mm. know, because he brought out his biography at 27. Quite honestly, that seems late nowadays. You get yeah. someone who's fetuses having a book deal. <laughs> and he the only reason he did that was to raise money for his theatre company. It wasn't anything to do with him being grand or anything. It was it was to raise money for an ASO. They don't have to be that generous, do they, these people? People don't need to be as generous as that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I had a similar thing happen at the start of my career with uh, Anthony Quayle. Yeah. The actor Anthony Quayle came to my dressing room and offered me a part in his company. Amazing. So that sort of launch at the start of your career is amazing, isn't it? Well, it really is. But I remember doing Minder. I did an episode of Minder. In, well, about just after that had happened, this is my first sort of professional job. And I was with Gareth Marks, Alfred Marks's son. Mm. Do you remember he played the big bopper for a long time? In- yeah, yeah. It's Buddy Brilliant in the West End. <laughs> and he said to me, which I did, really didn't understand at the time, he went, oh, he said, the problem is that might not have done you any favours because you might be expecting the business to be like that forever. And I thought, well, God, you know. And actually, he was right because, you know, <laughs> the first four years of being an actor, I was in all sorts of films. I did four feature films in my first four years. And then it just went dead as a doornail. Yeah. You know, you know what this business is like. It doesn't even have any natural progression. No. There's no sort of... I often feel like I'm having the longest apprenticeship anyone's ever had in any job. <laughs> so he was kind of right, you know. It, it, was, it was so great so early on. Mm. And it's something that I'm sure lots of actors have reported. I remember in 1995 going to a premiere in the West End of Haunted, which is a film I did with Anthony Andrews and Kate Beckinsale and Gielgud again. And Princess Diana came and met us all and it was that thing where you have a car to take you right up to the red carpet and all that stuff. And... You know, a week later, the film disappeared. It kind of come and gone. <laughs> but that was another case where you think, oh, God, this is great. This is the press wanting my photo. A few days later, it doesn't matter. It's just all ephemeral nonsense, really. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> you do have to keep doing it, don't you? That's the thing. You have to constantly have to keep proving yourself as well, in fact. Oh, yeah. But you're similar to me, Mike, in that you've done comedy and straight acting. And, uh, I mean, I don't leave any stone unturned. Uh, here we are. Here we are doing this now. Yeah. You know, trying to be inventive, trying to keep on our toes. But I think when I think what I've had to do over the years, you know, I do stand-up. I've written for people. I've presented. I've done stuff for kids. 
I've done film, TV. I don't leave any stone unturned. And no. uh, it's great, but it is nerve-wracking. I mean, doing the stand-up, for example. Yeah. It's a totally different discipline. That's a big thing to go into later in your career like that. It's a brave thing to do. I remember when we were doing Paperback Hell together, the yeah. radio series we did together. Yeah, that's right. You yeah. were constantly, it was became a sort of a joke that you would constantly <laughs> offer Barry from Watford as a character. You said, oh, what God. about this old man? I've got this brilliant old man voice. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And we, we oh. would say, oh, not the old man voice again. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of the, it's so funny. Uh, it's really a brilliant character. I mean, maybe maybe you're growing into it. Well, I, I mean, one of the things is that wearing this bloody prosthetic that I've had, actually, as I get older, I don't need it so much now because I'm getting craggier by the instant. <laughs> you know, been doing it there for 15 are, years. Yeah, there you are. Growing into the character. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I think that letter from Emma Thompson. That's yeah, really I, lovely. Which I keep in my desk. Yeah, it's a, it was a lovely thing. That. I knew Emma at university. Oh, yeah. And it was very, very obvious she was going to be an enormous star because she was so extraordinary. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, and she was lovely to be around, you know, we when we did, you know, in Italy, doing much to do about nothing and all that mm. sort of stuff. I did a lot of scenes with her because I was Ken Standing. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, lovely, lovely woman. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yes. Well, that letter, I'm going to fold it up carefully. Ah, oh, lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll put it in a plastic bag in case it rains. Yeah, lovely. Beautiful. That's going into the time capsule. The The other thing I would love to take with me thinking about it now, I've got a picture of my dad from probably about 19... Oh, God, what would it have been, 1953, 54, mm -hmm. something like that. He was a tea taster, my dear old dad. Uh, and so he was an expert on tea. Yeah. And he, he worked uh, in Upper Thames Street, just near St Paul's Cathedral. You know, worked tirelessly. A really, you know, my family of that sort of Protestant work ethic, suburban, lower middle class people. You go to work at nine, you come home at five. All this silly, bloody acting nonsense is <laughs> anathema to them. But, you know, he got a job out of school and he was an expert on tea. And to this day, tea has a really sort of spiritual quality. Nothing mm. fancy. It's normally just your bog standard tea or occasionally we'll have a Darjeeling or I quite like Kenyan, who's got that nice coppery tannin sort of flavor yeah but um it's a lovely picture of him <laughs> gobbing out a, a mouthful of tea into a big <laughs> urn a bucket sort of thing um i've seen people do it they do that very strange sort of real slurping don't yeah they? that's it that's it so i think it's like any tasting of wine or anything it you offer the the oxygen or bring the oxygen up through mm. through the, the thing and you taste it but um it was always a ritual i mean i'm ashamed to say in our house now the ritual of an evening is to open a bottle of wine or <laughs> there's a beer. But uh, growing up, nicer times, I think. The big thing was my dad making the tea and it was a mm. kind of warming the pot, warming the cups, you know, having just the right amount of tea, slightly more tea for a larger leaf, uh, yeah. what they call orthodox tea, which was where it's not been chopped uh, he'd make his own blends in the kitchen of different teas and bring it through, and it was like Dad's bringing the tea through. Wow. So it's a very – I mean, I, I love it. I couldn't 
I could not do without tea. Now it's, it just has so much sort of resonance for me. And then my brother, who you know, as a surly teenager, would be there, sat in front of the telly, lying against the radiator, watching the telly far too close, and. It would often be a thing about, Michael, it's your turn to make the tea tonight. He'd go, yeah, all right, in a minute. Come on, can you make the tea now? Come on, Mike, it's your turn. And very often he'd half make it or it would be stewed. And my dad's words were always, have I taught you nothing? You know, and it would be something. It would be such a letdown if one of us made it. Yeah, but he—it was always kind of perfect when he did it. So I think that's the thing. And I, you know, I miss him enormously. And you know, when when did you lose him? Uh, Eleven years ago. Eleven yeah. years ago. It flies, doesn't it? It flies. It by. really does. And you know, we. Uh, yeah, it's always it's still a bit painful to talk about. But um, mm. back in the day, in the fifties, he played saxophone, tenor sax. It's part of that that bebop generation you know, with Ronnie Scott and those people and Benny Benny Goodman was it yeah and all those guys who 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 were part of the, called the um, the jazz pioneers of the of the fifties mm. who uh, just after my dad did his national service he used to play with all sorts of people and I, and I I'll never forget I did a um, an episode of Jonathan Creek and there was a guy who was an extra and an old woman he had to push her in a wheelchair into the office. And it was a terrible thing where there was a sort of third assistant director or second going, can you can you move over? Oh, God, what's his name? Can you move over there? You know, doing that horrible yeah. barking at the sporting artist. And I thought, so bloody rude, you know. It's some poor old guy, you know, and you're so total disrespect. And I thought, don't speak to anyone like that. And so I, during the, the break, I spoke to this guy and I said to him, oh, I'm sorry about that. I, I didn't really like the way they were speaking to you. And he said, well, this is not really my game. I, I'm a I'm a musician, really. And he said, I just do this now because I, I don't really have the puff to play. I said, oh, right, what do you play? He said, oh, saxophone. <laughs> I said, oh, my dad used to play saxophone. And he said, oh, right, do, who did he play with anyone much? I said, oh, well, he was sort of semi-professional. I don't know. I mean, in the 50s, he played with people in big bands, but not, not recently. I said, the most famous person he played with was a chap called Harry Klein. And he said... I am Harry Klein. No. Yeah, the Harry Klein big band was a thing. I think Harry Klein arranged the brass section. I mean, I know he played on Lady Madonna, and I think he did a lot of the brass section for the Beatles. Wow. And my dad played in this big band where, quite honestly, no one had any music. They were all so great, these musicians. They'd Mm. be improvising, and you'd know where it changed key, and you'd know how many bars, and, you'd you know, they were all great musicians. And almost the second I'd said... Harry Klein. I knew this guy was Harry Klein. <laughs> I sort of knew it. Yeah. And I thought, look, don't speak to anyone in a degrading way. But this young guy, fresh out of college with his media yeah, studies, quite. has no idea who this guy is who played with the Beatles and played with every, you know. At that time, a man of that age, he would have gone through the war. Yeah, so, well, know. exactly. 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 So uh, we met up at that, you know, that. What's that place in Covent Garden, the concert party? Do you know that place? It's, oh, yeah. it's a it's a sort of club, the antithesis of the Soho House, or whatever. It's <laughs> it's like an old it's a, a place for, for sort of working performers, and they're pictures of Arthur English up and that sort of thing. Yeah. And we went there and met up with Harry Klein and my dad, and he chatted about jazz and all that, and it was it was great. Brilliant. I mean, neither of them are around anymore. Harry died, and uh, so so that was a lovely thing, and I think. You know, with this stupid showbiz thing that I do, 
I think my dad is the one person who sort of got it in a way. He'd been, yeah, yeah. He'd done a lot of performing. It's not. Yeah, they understand the um, yeah the, the draw of the thing. You know that actually yeah exactly what makes you keep going because as you said earlier, it's not easy sometimes. You think to yourself, no. why am I doing this? You know because oh absolutely has absolutely. anybody noticed any of it? <clears throat> you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you have, Michael. You seem to know a couple of my things. It's one of those things where it, it, it doesn't matter, really, because uh, without doubt, the moment somebody says to you, what have you been in, you could list everything and they, they would have never seen any of them. So <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. Well, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm never... I, I mean, I'm always amazed when you say something and people, you know, young millennials haven't even heard of it. I mean, I mentioned Vic and Bob the other day to someone. Yeah. Didn't know what I was talking about. Now, I thought that was fairly <laughs> recent. Vic and Bob. They said, oh, no, I don't really know that. Or, I mean, I suppose the Far Show. You forget that. That's a long time ago now as well, yeah, the Far yeah. Show. And, these things are and a long time things. ago. Yeah, but you do have to keep abreast of it. Well, I'm going to take that lovely picture of your dad. Ah, thank you. Thank you so much. Slurping his tea. Slurping his tea. We'll put that yeah. into the time capsule. Oh, that's yeah. good. That's good. That's lovely. Uh, shall I give you something that I don't want to... You've got to do it at some point, so you might as well get rid of it, yeah. I suppose it would be a cellular blanket from when I was a kid, which reminds me of... I suffered a lot from bronchitis oh. every winter. And... I, oh God, I mean, I just remember every winter it would hit my chest if I got cold. And when I think about it now, I think, bless my parents, I don't think they realised quite how bad it was. And they, mm. the uh, received um, practice of the day was to tip the bed up from feet upwards so that the, it sounds horrible for anyone listening, <laughs> but the catar would come off your lungs, mm. choke you, and you'd be sick was pretty much uh. what happened. And that would happen, uh, whereas now I think doctors recommend that it tips the other way to take it oh. away from your airwaves so you don't <laughs> die. <laughs> so uh, it was completely the wrong thing to do. I think it was, but I, I remember <laughs> them propping uh, books up under my bed to tip it. You know? yeah. But it, it was terrible. It was really truly awful every year i mean i just remember that and being sort of lying in a in a in our sort of box room i remember my parents being downstairs with with friends you know having their 1970s dinner parties everyone in their sort of flares and chiffon and big <laughs> flowery uh flowery patterns and occasionally having to shout down because I just felt so terrible and getting mildly hysterical because I couldn't breathe. I was never given an inhaler for some unknown reason. I remember other people who suffered from asthma had that. Yeah. But it was it would be every year. And it was just, it was, when I think now, very, very dangerous. And it's a wonder I didn't, you know, stop breathing or something. Uh, I mm. used to have, you know, some sort of medicine that I used to have, but I don't think that was, never felt... You know, it was fairly ineffectual. It never felt like it was an inhaler that instantly clears your lungs. Yeah, you're lucky you were around after the Clean Air Act, I have to say. Well, yeah. When I was a young boy, uh, we were always sent to school with scarves over our mouths or handkerchiefs, and they would just be black by the time we got there. Yeah. Because there was so much coal smoke in the air. Bloody hell. Smog everywhere. Yeah. But straight oddly, I grew out of it. I think the doctor said, you'll probably grow out of it when you're about 12 years old and... I have pretty much, I think. So, mm. I mean, when I do barely, uh, 
still manage to sound like I can't leverage his lung capacity, really. But uh, <laughs> frankly, I think I like to think that I'm fairly fit, could be fitter. I was talking to Steve Edge. I did send Steve a message and he's he sent back a, send his love. Oh, he's great, Steve Edge. And we were discussing it the other day, the fact that you should take over just a minute. With my Nicholas Parsons, it is the one impression, and now, Michael Fennett Stevens, you have one minute to speak to us. Yeah, that's my... Uh... Yeah. It's, it's always <laughs> amazed me, that impression. It's astonishing. There was an occasion where, when he started doing a happy hour at the Edinburgh Festival, Nicholas Parsons, it was produced by Piers Torday and Andrew Collier, who were producing my shows at Edinburgh at the time, Fat Bloke Productions. Mm. And they said, look, what are we going to do to try this thing out with Nicholas, you know? So they, they hired out the Pleasance in London and they said, look, we just got to, you know, we've basically got to fill it with anything just to see how it works. Uh, we'll get a couple of guinea pigs to, to come along. But would you do a thing at the start where you just do an impression of him? And I thought, oh, God, this is going to be, oh, <laughs> oh, well, all right, if it helps you out. And so I got there early and uh, Nicholas was saying, um, so at some point at the start, I will ask for a parody of Parsons. Can anybody do a parody of Parsons? I'm thinking, well, you're not going to see a sea of hands. Anybody? No. Ah, yes, you there on the front row. It's like yeah. obviously a plant. Yeah. And I did this whole thing as Nicholas. And at the end, he just went, yes, a little, little bit too posh. Right, go and sit down. And I thought, oh, cheers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> thanks a lot. But um, I just remember, you know, in that, in that sort of, had a slightly curt way about him. You know, when he he does that sort of admonishing people on Yes. Uh, Years ago, I asked for his autograph. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was the launch of a big advertising campaign and they'd invited hordes of celebrities. Yeah. I mean, people that I was very excited to meet. Right. And Nicholas Parsons. Right. <laughs> and my younger brother had asked me to get some autographs for his rag week at university. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. But the one person I did ask was Nicholas Parsons just as he was leaving it. He said, for me, for you want to, uh, of course, my dear boy, um, um, has anyone got a pen? This young man wants my order. And he shouted it out across oh. his <laughs> <laughs> And everybody yeah. turned and looked at me as I to say, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I remember him... Um... Uh, what's his name? Parsons. Uh, Andy Parsons. You know Andy, Andy Parsons. Parsons. He was on Andy Parsons, and he he was a special guest, and he had a sort of cocktail trolley. We said, now what 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 would you like to uh, drink? And, well, I'll have a. Uh, I think I'll have one of those uh, daiquiris uh, you you got there. Uh, uh, and right now, and, then, and it went. <laughs> that sort of fell over, smashed. No, um, no, we really, really will have to get a bigger uh, 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 cocktail trolley. Uh, lemonade. Just have a lemonade. Just have a lemonade. No. Oh right. Okay. And it was like, oh god. God, this is going terribly. And then he said to uh, Andy Parsons, now it says here, you've written jokes, you've written, you do a double act, you've written for Ned Sheridan's Loose Ends, uh, which I always used to like um, uh, before, when it, it's now on in the evening. It used to be on after sport on four uh, in the mornings, on Saturday mornings, but it's caused this move now. And Andy Parsons went, sorry, have you got me on here to talk about Radio 4 scheduling? And Parsons <laughs> coldly went, no, the idea is I say something, then you try to be funny right and I just, <laughs> oh my word oh god it was like oh my torture but uh you know it's sad that he went and it's sad well that... he had an amazing career amazing life yeah. roy hard 
Fantastic people. Some great people. I was really gutted when um, Brucey, when Brucey went, absolutely loved Bruce Forsyth. I mean, mm. brilliant, brilliant. When you think, you know, Generation Game and all that, all these greats who I grew up with. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I've been uh, touring my show, uh, Clinton Baptiste, which is a character mm. I played on Phoenix Nights. And it occurred to me, you know, I've, I've played uh, the City Varieties in Leeds yeah. where they filmed uh, The Good Old Days and we've sold it out three times. And I, it's the most fantastic stage. And the reason I'm saying this is because it's synonymous with those kind of British light entertainment stars who used to do The Good Old Days. Mm. And it's got a rich tradition of, kind of British variety, comedy, cabaret. And every time I'm on that stage, I think, you know what? The reason it means so much to me is because those were my real heroes growing up. Mm-hmm. And my, you know, my dad and my grandparents were all cheerful cockney chumpies, were into all that stuff. In a way, much more than being on the National Theatre or the Royal Court or the Almeida or something. Being on that stage at City Verizon, I think, yeah, this is what gave me the flavour for it as a young lad. Yeah. Is watching TV and seeing a sea of, you know, jolly laughing faces and all the colour and the lights and whether it's Les Dawson doing a routine or those people, you know, your Nicholas Parsons, your Bruce Forsyth, Roy Hudd, Mike Yarwood even, you know, those were the people who really got me wanting to be a performer. Mm. Not classical actors particularly. Yeah, no, it's funny, isn't it? And then you sort of think, well, to become an actor, I have to become a classical actor. Yeah. I often think that maybe I would have been uh, better off or maybe happier just if yeah. I'd become a redcoat. Well, why not? Actually, I've spent my entire career craving a part at the National Theatre. And actually, I don't know whether I'd really enjoy it that much. I mean, <laughs> would I? Maybe I would, because actually when I go and see shows there, I think, of course, that reminds me why I wanted to do it. Yeah, but, um, and you get days off. You get days off, Would you get paid you? a lot of money, and it's always great quality stuff. But yeah. by the same token, it's thrilling to be up in front of a boozy, hot loud, unforgiving audience at mm. the Cookie Club in Leicester. That kind of tests your mettle, you know, so... Uh, and then getting away with it, and then actually winning, you know. Yeah, and then 20 minutes later, knowing you've earned your money, I'm off, done it, I can go. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. In the bag. In the bag. Put it in your hole. That's it. Take it away with you. Yeah. yeah. Great days. Great days, great days. But uh, childhood where when you're ill and uh, there's nothing they can do about it. Yeah, re- really awful that was. We're lucky with the advance. Oh, God, very much so. So, yeah, we would definitely put bronchitis, your bronchitis. Yes. With your bed tilting upwards. That's it. And, my, and particularly that, that yellowy, yellowy cellular blanket from the early yeah. 70s, yeah. yeah. So that's three things we put in there. What's next? Right, we're going to take a short advertising break here. We'll be back anon. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Right, here we are at Anon, so-called, some say, because I just go on and on and on. So I'll shut up and let you get back to the lovely Alex Lowe. So something lovely. i tell you what I would take with me, and this, for anyone who's not a football fan, don't turn off, because I'm sure I can expand this to mean something to someone. I've got Clive Allen's 1982 FA Cup final shirt hanging up, framed in my study, just next door to where we're speaking now. How did you get that? Well, my uncle, Tony, was the deputy chairman at QPR in the days of Jim Gregory and was there throughout their most glorious period. And he probably is the guy who got me into uh, Queen's Park Rangers. And he was my sort of hotline to the big stars. Mm. So occasionally I'd be a a guest, we'd go in the director's box and I'd be meeting, I remember meeting Stan Bowles' kids uh, and um, he got me a ticket for the FA Cup final in 1982. He got me a ticket for the semi-final at uh, Highbury in 82. Are you a football fan, Michael? Could you? Yes, I am. I I know exactly what you're talking about. Ah, okay. Who's your team, Mike? Well, my team, I was born in uh, February 1958. So my team, is Manchester United. I see, I see, okay. My father, although we lived near Millwall Football Ground in London, he insisted on me being a Manchester United fan. Really? From the first time I could think, really. So I'm stuck with it. You know? Okay. But you tell me, because my, oh, that's my dog choking behind me. Sorry. Um, that's where my family's from, around there, Millwall. Bermondsey. Yeah, that's my, my, yeah. mine. We probably had this discussion once before. No, I'm not sure we have. Well, just off Jamaica Road. Really? My father worked for Baldwin and Mellor Company, which had an office just around there by the tunnel. Bloody hell. Well, that's where my lot are from. And that's where Barry from Watford comes. It's based on all those old companies. Who were, and during the war, they were moved out. Mine were apparently next to an armaments factory and had to move out in the war to the sort of green belt, which was up here where I live now in northwest London. Right. My mother was born in Paradise Street. Go on, yeah. Which is just around the back of Jamaica Road. Oh, my God, it's amazing. Well, my dad, I think, during the war, he was three when it started. He ended up in South Harrow at a school there. Uh, But, yeah, so my lot were all like that, and they, you know, moved during the war. But my old man, who Barry is sort of based on, she worked at South Harrow Market in a fish stall for something um, like 50 years, a real no-nonsense company who I think thought that my dad, you know, married my mum slightly more middle class. 
bit posh, <laughs> bit poshy, bit poshy that lot. And and I mean, I remember on my twenty uh, first, we we went and had dinner at a Greek restaurant in Hatch End, which is quite a posh middle classy sort of area. And my nan came along and, oh, God, you know, really making a point of yeah. being a sort of working-class cockney. This isn't for her. And saying to the waiters, are you from Barcelona? Do you speak English? And my dad saying, look, Mum, they probably have difficulty understanding you with your accent and and completely taking it all wrong again. Oh, I never thought I'd hear the day when you was ashamed. And, I, you know, all that stuff. Just completely chose to take it the wrong way. Yeah. Uh, anyway, how'd I get on to that? So, Bermondsey, yeah, so... Well, yeah, so my dad uh, was from that area and then sort of moved during the war to uh, northwest London, South Harrow, uh, and he used to go to Arsenal and Tottenham. And, I mean, of course, just after the war, I, I think there was a lot of people who, I think there'd been enough rivalry and sort of pack mentality with the war. I think it was just great to get out and see yeah. football. So he would go and see Fulham, Arsenal, Tottenham. I don't think he ever went to Chelsea. But um, <laughs> anyway. How did you end up with QPR then? Well, I think my uncle, you know, who was actually the managing director of Hoover, you know, in Perryvale, that massive Hoover yeah. building, he worked his way out. He's a working class lad and he worked himself to that position. He was the manager of Hoover in Britain and he was on the board at uh, QPR. And, you know, of course, when I was a teenager, I didn't want to go in the bloody director's box. I was in the Loftus Road end with all the horrible casuals. Um, <laughs> But that was our great season with Clive Allen and Simon Stainrod and Tony Curry, Stan Bowles. Mm. So I would take the Clive Allen shirt. We, I mean, I went in 82, we were in the cup final and uh, we got the one-all draw against Tottenham. Terry Fennick, much maligned Terry Fennick, of course, who people all often accuse of failing to stop Maradona with that great goal in uh, 86. <laughs> uh, Terry Fennick nodded in the... The, uh, the equaliser against Spurs, but I couldn't go to the replay because I was doing another country in the West End. Yeah. So it's Ken Branagh's fault again. The bloody Ken Branagh's fault. Ken but Brander. you know, you, you'll be interested to know who did go to the replay. It was, of course, in those days, we had to share the role because we were underage. Yeah. Hal Cruttenden. You know, yeah, Hal Cruttenden needs a stand-up comic. Yeah, it's very funny. We both shared that role in another country, really? would you believe? He was the other guy, yeah, yeah. <gasps> so... Um, so I think the great days, you know, my teenage years of being sort of 14, 15 years old and going to QPR, yeah. uh, you know, with your mates larking around, pushing each other off the tube when just the door's about to shut, <laughs> chucking chips at each other, you know, great <laughs> laughs, some great, great laughs. I mean, of course, at the time, football, it was always there was always an air of we could have been beaten up at any time. Yeah. And there was always that going on. We'd always have to go via Baker Street, which would be teeming with Chelsea and Arsenal and all sorts of people. So there was a lot of hiding your scarf in those mm. days, which doesn't seem to happen now. No. But uh, great, great days, really good laugh. So I think my Clive Allen shirt... That Clive Allen shirt is gorgeous. That's a lovely thing to put in there. But what I really love about yeah. that period of football is that you had teams like QPR that had great players like Stan Bowles yeah. and, uh, and Tony Curry. And they're players that now would almost immediately be bought by the big clubs. Oh, yeah. That, that team yeah. would be torn apart. I know. I, I mean, I, what's happened in, in recent years is that I've uh, 
this is a terrible thing to say. I've moved on to Wolverhampton Wanderers because my son, <laughs> I stuck a picture of QPR versus Wolves on the fridge and he went for the bloody wrong ones when he was about seven. <laughs> and now I'm a season ticket holder at Molyneux, would you believe? But you saying about that and the, and the way football's gone, that the case in point is Wolves. Mm. You know, they're flying now. Yeah. And had they not ended the season, we'd have probably won the Europa League. Yeah. Uh, but we sort of go there week in, week out. But part of me, you know, it's owned by a Chinese conglomerate. They're all sort of Portuguese superstars who play for Wolves. Yeah. There's one English player. Now, I'm not saying that's a be-all and end-all, but the gap between them and us, mm-hmm. it's kind of expanded. Yeah. And so it's all about money, big money. If you want success, you buy these people in. And it's similar to what you were saying. Mm. It seemed to be much more a meritocracy in the old days. You know, you'd have people coming up through the ranks. Now it's actually totally who's got the most money to spend on the best players in the world, yeah. you know. That's something I've, I've, I lament, really, because a few seasons ago when it was crap at Wolves, <laughs> I sort of liked it slightly more for some reason, you know. Yeah. My, long way to go to lose. No, my brother's anyway. a bit like that. He's a Crystal Palace fan, so he loves yeah. the fact that they're always the underdog. Yeah, sure. I, I, do you know, there's something about Palace I like. Mm. I was there recently, uh, Wolves nicked an equaliser at the end. But there's something about that ground and it's sort of that area. It's proper old school football ground. It really is, yeah. And if you ever Noisy. if you ever go there with the away fans, yeah, go there with the away fans and there's a guy who plays songs to whip you up, plays your songs. Really? If you've got an affinity with a certain song, he'll play that. So Wolves have, you know, hi-ho, silver lining mm-hmm. or, or, you know, chants based on songs. And it's just... Proper old school. I really like it. Yeah. I saw Cantona jump into the crowd at Crystal Palace. Oh, did you? Yeah. You were there that night? I was. Oh, my God. And we were supposed afterwards to meet the Man United players. I was all very excited about it. And, of course, they were all rushed straight onto the bus and gone. That was it. Oh, I never God. got to meet them. You, you shouldn't have called him a prick then, should you? <laughs> I shouldn't have thrown my tea at him. That's it. It's my <laughs> exactly. fault. <laughs> so you weren't within hearing distance of what that bloke shouted, were you? No, I wasn't. But I did see the man throw the tea at him. He threw a, oh, threw a hot God. cup of tea. It was immediately after half time, and he threw a hot cup of tea over him. And, and they didn't really ever show that. Hell. The thing they didn't show in that thing is that um, yeah, I, I can't remember, one of the other players piled yeah. into the crowd and started thumping people. And by that time, really? all the cameras were on Cantona and the referee. Yeah. So they never had. Really? Now that you'd have footage of everything because they have cameras everywhere. Sure. But then it was what they were concentrating on. That's what they had footage of. But we in the crowd saw several Man United players thump people in the crowd. So they really should really? have been banned as well. You know? But um, the guy's defence was that he said something like, "Come on, Cantona, it's an early bath for you." I can't imagine. I, I don't think that's what he said. I'm not sure that's what he said. No. <laughs> well, they, the rumour is he said something about his mother which is, you know, why should people put up with that? It's incredible. Oh, I know. I I like it when it's just really brutal and it's like one of my favourites is someone has a wild shot that hits Rosehead and it's da-da-da-da, fucking useless. (laughs) Fucking useless. It's so damning. (laughs) And you think, yeah, that was useless. (laughs) if they took away my football, uh, it really is. And for my son, it's such a distraction mm. from real life. Mm. It feels every bit as important as real life, if not more sometimes. And yet it's safe because it's just sport. You know, it's you can get aerated about it and you can yeah. have an opinion. You're allowed to have your opinion, but it's not 
a world war. It's just sport, and there'll be another season. Yeah, it's just the most lovely release, and and to go there, you know, really, I, I I'm I'm ashamed at how little theatre I go to see. I used to when I was a lot younger, but bloody hell, I'd rather spend my money going to see a football match. You have the heroes, the villains, you've got the plot. You've got you've got everything. You've got an interval to to mull over what happened in the first half, what's going to happen in the second. It's the most perfect form of theatre and a pie. And You'll never get a pie in the West End. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you're not surrounded by arseholes <laughs> as well. <laughs> well, you are, but slightly lesser. Uh, yeah. So I love that. Brilliant. I love that. Right. We're going to put Clive Allen's shirt into yes. uh, into the time capsule. Okay. Last one, Alex. Okay. I have got. Uh, in the garage. It's a sort of abstract painting done by my friend Caroline Creamer, who we used to knock around with in the 90s. And the reason I want to keep this is because it is hanging on the wall behind a photo of my wife when we got engaged. And she looks so sort of happy. And I think of that picture, it reminds me of that period in time. We we got engaged in 1996. We've been married from 1997 ever since. Hmm. And, you know, she's a kind of wonderful, selfless, really, really, you know, she's a saint. She really, you know, you meet people who had to genuinely care about others, you know, working in schools, having a real interest in kids in their pastoral care, not just the bloody exam results. In fact, not remotely interested in the exam results and the league tables and all that shit. Um, but she's just very, uh, absolutely kind of wonderful, saintly woman and and someone who, I mean, you'll know about this, Mike, you know, being, I'm not, I'm not suggesting you're like this, but any actor <laughs> being slightly precious, precious about their job. Oh, and, I am, I am, and, I really and, am. And the... The egos and who said that and who's doing better and and all that <laughs> silly bullshit. Mm. She listens to all that from me and, you know, she's very kind and considerate. A lot of people would go, why don't you shut up about that? You know, <laughs> Very, very kind and very patient. What I will say, she never comes to anything I'm doing. Doesn't come to any of it. And that's fine because it's not particularly her thing. No. And she always says to me, Look, I have to. We discuss your career all the time at home. <laughs> I don't necessarily have to go and see it, you know, because it's very, you know, it's like that's my job. I don't think she necessarily. I don't. I, I don't come in where she works and shadow her the whole time. There's a sort of hidden compliment in that, though, the fact that you, you don't need me there. You'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's right. I mean, I always find it incredible. You know, we did uh, Claire in the Community on Radio Four for about fifteen years. Yeah. She's she's in the next room. She can probably hear this. So <laughs> she comes in and kicks me in the head. That that uh, <laughs> that will be disproving the saintliness. But um, yeah, she never came to any of those. I saw people, I saw people get engaged, have kids, <laughs> grow up, get divorced, and every single show, you know, someone comes around and says, do you, do you, "Have you got any guests coming in tonight? Your wife, you, you want your wife on the guest list?" And, 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 no, not tonight. <laughs> no. I don't think she can make it. And it'd be like. <laughs> Does this woman actually exist? But, you know, it's fine. She listens to it all the time and she she has a Radio 4 Extra on all night long. Mm. So occasionally Claire in the community comes up and she says, oh, God, I can't escape you in the middle of the night. Yeah. So uh, really, I just to, to uh, remember my wonderful wife and 
thank her for getting married to me. Mm. Well, if I saw that painting in the garage, I'd sort of go, well, you obviously don't like that painting very much, put it in the garage. (laughs) But to you, to you, it's it's a marvellous thing. So so it's great to hear those. It's really great to hear it, Alex. Thank you so much. Uh, Well, I really appreciate you uh, asking me, Mike. Thank you for asking me. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Alex Lowe. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to My Time Capsule on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter, etc. by searching My Time Capsule or at MyTCPod. Please do review the podcast and rate us if you have the time. This podcast was produced by John Fenton-Stevens and the music is by Pass the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production, which might suggest a sailing theme to some, or to others, knitting, but which is in fact supposed to make you think of podcasts through the use of the word cast. See? Yeah, I'm not sure what the off is for. Anyway, we've come to the end, so you'd better turn me off. Oh, I see. That's clever, yeah. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.